This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Women's History, a collaboration between the New Book Network and the Journal of Women's History. Uh, The Journal of Women's History is going to be moving to the University of Oklahoma uh, in the summer of 2020. My name is Ronnie Grinberg. I'm an assistant professor at the University of Oklahoma and your host for today's conversation with Pamela Nadell. Uh, She's at American University, and we will be talking about her recent book, America's Jewish Women, A History from Colonial Times to Today published by Norton in 2019, and it'll be coming out in paperback in um, the spring of 2020. Pamela Nadell, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, Could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Uh, I'm a professor of Jewish history at American University in Washington, and I have written um, books on American Jewish history um, and on Jewish women's history before and but I've never told the whole story of America's Jewish women before as I've done with this book. Um, and how did you come to write um, on American Jewish uh, history and on American Jewish women? Such a great question. When I was in graduate school, American the study of American Jewish history was really not seen as so central to the field as it has become in recent years. And sorry, which field? Um, uh, American uh, history or Jewish studies? Um, uh, Jewish studies, modern Jewish studies. Okay. And then, and also when I was in graduate school, women's history was just beginning to emerge in the academy. In fact, not long ago when I was on book tour, I saw um, Lila Rupp, who played a huge role in the field of women's history. And I had TA'd for her when she taught the first women's history course at Ohio State University. So it took me a long time to figure out how to put the two fields together. And that was this project. Um, The project that you eventually came to um, now, this modern project. So let's talk a little bit about the process of writing the book. Um, uh, Yeah, first, uh, yeah, just what what brought you to this point and how you thought about organizing this book. Um, it's, and maybe tell us actually first a little bit about the book. All right. All right. The, the book narrates what is distinctive about Jewish women in America from 1654, when the first two Jewish women whose names we know set foot on New Amsterdam all the way up to virtually the 21st century. And what I tried to do in the book was to understand their lives the, the quotidian experiences that they had. Um, obviously, I also had to talk about very well-known Jewish women like Emma Lazarus, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I couldn't right. write a book without that. But I really wanted to understand what was different about Jewish women's lives across the generations. What was different about how they raised their families? What was different about the kinds of work they did, the kinds of work they were not allowed to do? What about the places that they lived? I also, I had questions about leisure. I wanted to know, when did Mahjong become a Jewish woman's game, right? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I was so happy to see references to Mahjong, these things that you think of as so quintessential right. Jewish, but you don't know why. Right. Um, also a reference to Lomans, which is a department store right. that I grew up with my mom <laughs> shopping in. <laughs> longer exists. Right. 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 Um, which was all in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Frida Lohman, who was not Jewish, but who who invented a Jewish way of shopping. She absolutely did. Yeah. Oh, that's I knew knew a little a little bit of Yiddish. <laughs> she she knew she had to learn enough Yiddish to deal with her customers. <laughs> that's amazing. Um 
Okay, so um, how did you go about making? So this is a synthesis. Well, it's a, it's a grand history of American Jewish women, right. and I had mentioned to you earlier that it's such an amazing book because it synthesizes um, the existing literature, but it also has a lot um, of primary source right. research as well. So how did you go about um, making choices and deciding? And, and research, how did you go about such an expansive project? Right. Uh, so the first thing I would say is I spent, I think, decades thinking about this book. And in, in fact, um, as I mentioned earlier, the day that I sent off the manuscript, my daughter, who was then 24, posted a photo of herself on Facebook at the age of four and said, my mom finally finished the book. <laughs> <laughs> and... The book went through many iterations. As I would think about it over the years, I was also simultaneously reading a tremendous amount of scholarship in women's history, and also the scholarship in American Jewish women's history was just beginning to evolve. Didn't That scholarship doesn't take off until the 1990s. In fact, in the early 2000s, I edited a collection of articles called American Jewish Women's History, a reader, and, and in that reader... There's only one article that's published before the 1990s. American Jewish Women's History, its writing lagged behind the soaring scholarship, emerging scholarship in women's history. And I wasn't able to really see my way to this book until I had that scholarship under my belt. And it was being written as I was thinking about the book, um, the especially the scholarship in women's history that dealt with sexuality, that dealt with maternalism, that dealt with motherhood. I needed to understand the wider context in order then to be able to situate what I knew about American Jewish women. Um, in terms of the primary research that I ended up doing, first of all, I wanted to tell stories that hadn't been told before. That became very critical for me. So that meant I had to go to the sources. Um, into the archives. Obviously today, thanks to technology, I could reach archives easily like Yad Vashem in Israel that I wouldn't have been able to reach easily at another point in time. That, that became absolutely critical. But I also was really struck by how often some of the stories about America's Jewish women remained hidden in those archives and I could, I could retrieve those narratives. It is a grand history. Its original manuscript was twice as long, but because I wanted to reach a wider audience that I thought could read this book, I had to make very hard choices about whose story I would tell. And I did, I mean, you noticed it, I ended up privileging some of those archival stories rather than some of the stories that might have been told by others. Okay. And in those were a lot, some of those archival stories, stories that hadn't been you touched by many others. I mean, you mentioned that American Jewish women's history developed sort of late, and I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about that. Why you think that was the case? And then when you went to the archives, were there sources that had really not, or these stories that really hadn't been told before? Right, that ha hadn't been told that hadn't been told in this way before. I think so. I think the first thing is. I have always observed that in terms of the writing of Jewish history, Jewish history tends to lag behind the wider field of whatever that particular wider historical field is. So that seems to be the, the first thing. And it's, so it didn't surprise me when I was working on the reader in American Jewish women's history years ago that the articles appeared essentially about a decade after the first scholarship in American women's history was appearing. Um, so that, that, that strikes me as as something that's true about the field writ large, the field of Jewish studies or Jewish history writ large. And then when I began looking for particular stories, I was often looking for a hook that would advance the storytelling narrative. So I'll give you I'll give you one example. There's there's so much written by Holocaust survivors. I could have chosen any one of a myriad of, of memoirs to tell, to include women who came from um, Europe after World War II and who became part of the American Jewish community. There's a section in the book where I want to talk about how complicated Jewish women's lives were in the 1950s, how they belied the standard narrative of a line of mothers pushing a line of baby carriages into the future. And I, but I, so I, I was looking for a narrative 
by a Holocaust survivor. And I, I, one of the women I feature earlier in the book who was Bessie Abramowitz Hillman. Bessie Abramowitz was a labor leader. She once said that she was Bessie Abramowitz before he was Sidney Hillman because his, his, his name was originally Shmuel. And they had, and they, they were both labor leaders in Chicago. Eventually, of course, they come to New York. Eventually, he becomes um, the head of the Amalgamated Clothing Workers. And eventually, he is also um, a key figure in FDR's administration during World War II. But I found in my reading that they brought a niece after the war who had survived over to America. And I went looking for something where she told her story. And I found that she had actually written two volumes, an unpublished memoir that sits in the Yad Vashem archives. And I decided she's going to be my story for understanding the complexity of Holocaust survivors and America's Jewish women in the 1950s. Amazing. So finding a unpublished memoir in Israel to anchor um, this broader story and to bring it to light. Yeah. Um, what are some of your other favorite stories in the book? One of my other favorite stories is a woman named Rose Pines Cohen. One of the things I tried to do was to use actors or characters, mm-hmm. which historians don't usually use those terms, but I do, to use characters to anchor various chapters. And I, I anchor the chapter on East European immigrant women with the labor activist Bessie Abramowitz-Hillman and with Rose Pines Cohen, whose oral history we have from thanks to the Jewish Women's Archive, which was an extraordinary resource for me. Could not have written this book without it. Mm. And she was interviewed in Baltimore when she was probably already in her 90s. She came as an immigrant to America in 1921 or 1922, her father had come to America before World War I. They, he and his wife and children were separated when the war broke out. Um, and then her mother died. And after the war, her father was able to bring over his three children. To, and they went and they settled in Baltimore. And one of the things I really wanted to do was not only tell stories about New York. Yeah. I wanted to tell stories about Baltimore and Chicago other and parts other, of the country. other parts of the country. It was critical to me. And Rose Pines Cone had, on the one hand, her story would be the kind of story that wouldn't necessarily make it. She was, you know, she became a wife and a mother and she became a teacher. And when she retired, she gave back to her community by volunteering for various associations. And she eventually, when she died at the age of 102, she died in the city that she adopted as her home in America. But she had extraordinary experiences because she went to college and then she's, she wants to become an accountant. And she goes out on the job market and man interviews her and he says, you have to work half days on Saturdays. And he's and she says, I won't do that. She was an observant Jewish woman. She was one of the women who centered Judaism at the core of her life. And he says, oh, it's no problem. You just ask your father. He'll let you work on Saturdays. And it wasn't about her father. It was about her. Yeah. And it that encounter with anti-Semitic restriction, because she offered to work an extra hour each night, which would have given him more time than the time he would have gotten on Saturday mornings. And that encounter when he said no, changed her life, and she became a religious school teacher. So we see how the encounter with anti-Semitism affected her entire life. And that's a story that if I didn't have that oral history interview sitting in an archive, I would not have been able to tell. Well, that gets me to two questions. One is, so there's a lot of women that we would never have learned about um, who are not well-known, who are um, who are buried in archives that you sort of rediscovered. But then there's also a lot of women that we do know, familiar names, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, Betty Friedan. And so I have two questions. One is whether you learned um, something new um, about, or is there something new that about any of these famous women maybe that we didn't know? Um, and then the second question was that we're in a moment of heightened anti-Semitism and just wondering if writing this book at that moment, in this moment, um, shaped your thinking about 
how to t- or how to tell these stories or the role of anti-Semitism. Certainly in my own teaching, I'm thinking about anti-Semitism differently in American Jewish history class um, in the sense that it's it's not it's clearly something that hasn't gone away. So those are two different questions. Right. But, the, but they're linked. The okay. questions the questions are linked. So what so the first thing I, I would say is that I I finished this manuscript in um, May of 2018. And when I was writing it, I wasn't thinking about anti-Semitism, right. which is not surprising because what we know about the historiography on American anti-Semitism is that it kind of waxes and wanes. Right. And when anti-Semitism is confronting American Jews, historians look back and they say, oh my gosh, now let me think about anti-Semitism. In fact, right now, um, a number of American Jewish historians are meeting, some of us virtually, at the Center for Jewish History in New York in a working group on anti-Semitism. And now I'm teaching a freshman seminar on anti-Semitism. But when I was writing the book, I wasn't thinking about it. But when I look back at the book, now what is jumping out at me is how often anti-Semitism figured in the lives of women. Okay. And the two that you mention, it, it, it's like, you know, it's a spark. So Betty Friedan writes, um, she wrote this in an article in Tikkun magazine and probably said it elsewhere. Betty Friedan writes about the fact that it was her exclusion from a sorority in high school when she was living in a small town in Illinois that um, sensitized her to women as others, because she was there, an other Jew. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg also talks about seeing signs about no Jews being admitted to places when she was a young girl and traveling around various places. So anti-Semitism figured in their lives, and we know that encounters with anti-Semitism really, um, for some Jewish women, also helps spark their feminism. So I'm I'm struck when I go back. I I would have pulled that out more had I written the book now. Yeah, absolutely. That's so interesting. Um, so something where we thought anti-Semitism, like you said, ebbed and flowed, and perhaps in recent decades, um, at least I had thought if you would have asked me five years ago, right. had really declined, and right. then all of a sudden realizing that this actually could it, it could flow once again, right? And now realizing how how central it was to some extent to the experience of American right. Jews and how much it affected their lives, yeah, and their choices, yeah. What's so What's so striking is that in two thousand, a scholar published a book, and he titled it "The Death of American Anti-Semitism," yeah. which you could say in two thousand, yeah. even though if you looked across the ocean in two thousand, anti-Semitic incidents were rising. On the rise. So now nobody would would write a book with that title. Well, this gets to another question then that I was um, thinking about, which is that. Um, you write both about Jewish women who were involved in the communal Jewish mm-hmm. world, but also about Jewish women whose either experiences with anti-Semitism or their their experience growing up Jewish, their Jewishness shapes what they did. Right. So my question is, is um, I guess if you could talk a little bit about both those stories, but also that – so anti-Semitism sparks a concern for – equality for lots of groups in the Jewish community and maybe speak a little bit about that too. What what stands out for me is the way in which representations of Jews that were that were um, uh, negative often would would spark a response from America's Jewish women that we might we might not have expected. Right. So I'll, let me let me get, give an example. Um, when the National Council of Jewish Women was founded in 1893, which is the first of what I like to call the powerhouse Jewish women's organizations, okay. still exists today. One of the causes that they take up is protecting um, immigrants, immigrant girls and women traveling on their own, protecting them from falling into the hands of white slavers. And when I first thought about that, I thought, well, that's natural. It's maternalist. And they're 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 making sure that Girls and women are okay. They stay. They station an agent at Ellis Island. Yeah. Um, they they create networks of Jewish women who will meet girls and women traveling on their own as they they take trains across the country, meet them, make sure that they're they're okay. Um, but then I also thought, well, isn't this also part of their reaction to anti-Semitism because there was so much written in the press in the early 20th century about Jewish networks of net, various networks of Jewish traders 
being involved in white slavery and Jewish women being lured into white slavery. So I see it kind of coming from both sides. Okay. So protecting the Jewish community, but also right. informing a broader activism. Right. Um, and that's not the only, ex- I mean, there's and so that, many examples so of many. that, Yeah. Um, which I think is what makes the American Jewish story, um, I don't know if I want to say unique, but there's something about that. Um, I guess we could talk a little bit about, well, yeah, what makes the American Jewish women's story unique and how does it also mirror um, women's history right. more broadly? It, and, and that's what I tried to do is I tried to show that it was mirroring women's history broadly. Yeah. Um, when I write about things like um, family formation and um, raising children, I'm turning to women's history, U.S. women's history. There are also, there are also major structural differences between American Jewish women and other American women. For example, for more than a century, Jewish women have been disproportionately well-educated. The numbers are stunning when yeah. when, when you look at it. Um, the Jewish women down until today, twice as many Jewish women as other American women have graduate degrees. That, that structural difference means that there's going to be a difference between Jewish women and other women. Mm-hmm. It's a difference that, by and large, I think U.S. women's historians didn't pay a lot of attention to, in part because... We have this huge problem of how do we define Jews? Do we define them right. as a religion? Do we define them as a racial group? Do we define them as an ethnic group? And that's a conversation that continues to be ongoing at this moment in time. Jews, Jews don't fit into the easy categories of, Ameri- of American Jewish life. So I do think that Jewish women remain distinctively different, but their history has to be written in the context of the history of American women, and then in the context of the wider history of the American Jewish community. But you're right. I also pay a lot of attention to women who, for for these women, Jew, being a Jew was utterly inconsequential until they bumped up against somebody who thought it was consequential. And so they Jew, Jewish identity just didn't matter to them. They they tried they tried to ignore it. They tried to mask it. I, I happened to be watching on the plane last night um, a documentary on Hedy Lamarr, and her children asked her, "Are we Jewish?" You know, because it was something that she didn't talk about, except that Hedy Lamarr left um, Austria because she, and came to the United States because it mattered if you were a Jew in Austria in the 1930s. Right. Right. So interesting. Um, so finding, do you have any sense of why, um, why Jewish women were more well-educated? Um, what, what, what were some of those structural issues or those, what, what brought that about? Right. What, what, what brings the changes from, so here, here's the piece where you really need to know American Jewish history. So American Jewish history, as you know so well, um, American Jews put their, the kind of threw their hat in the ring of public education yeah. as the way to advance in American life. And f- first of all, they valued public education for their sons over their daughters. And age often determined who got to go to school. But there was this tremendous thirst for education on the part of, and now I'm thinking especially of the East European immigrant women who came over, which is extremely well documented. So that's the first thing. Second thing that happens is because half of America's Jews live in New York City, they have access to free public universities. And... City College of New York, which yep. I know you you know so much about and spoke recently about, and Hunter College become avenues for higher education. So Jewish women who living in another city or another place wouldn't have been able to go to college if their families could afford for them the car fare and to do without their income, they could send them on to higher education. And so they disproportionately become teachers in the right. New York City school system. Which you talk about at length. Right. Um, which others have written about. Yep. And it, it's that it, it's that this was the path to success in American life. And then it becomes the path not only for sons, but also for daughters. Well, that's the interesting question, though, because it's initially thought of as for sons. And then so many daughters right. also are able um, to take advantage of the free education. And I'm just wondering... Um, 
what that how that shift was prompted within the American Jewish community. I think I think part of the reason it's prompted is because to have a daughter who becomes a teacher means that she moves immediately into, into the, the middle, middle class, class right? Mm-hmm. And if she could marry a man who is facing quotas and is not going to become a professional, she's going to be a professional before he is. Yeah. And she's always going to be able to earn a living. And I also wonder because it, you know, it it was accepted for Jewish women to be economic agents, exactly. um, always, um, at least in Eastern European um, Jewish society, and, Ashkenazi society. So that shift into right. public, I mean, so there there was a precedent for being women women involved um, in the public right. sphere as economic agents that had been there before they came to the United right. States. And it, it's stunning to read the memoirs of successful women in America who recall their mothers saying, study, go to college, become a teacher. Bess Meyerson, the first woman and the only woman ever to become Miss America, she she remembers her her mother telling, there were three girls in the family, telling them, you have to be able to earn your own living in case anything happens. She didn't expect that Bess Meyerson would get divorced because (laughs) when when, uh, she and her husband divorced, um, they pressured her not to to walk out on him and and not to get divorced. But but she needed to have a profession that she could fall back on. And do you think the fact that um, Jewish women were disproportionately um, likely to get a college degree, that many of them had um, pursued professions, do you think that in some way shaped their activism and why I, so many Jewish women um, are present, um, especially uh, in second wave feminism? Right. I, the, the stunning thing about second wave feminism it's, is – the disproportionate number of Jewish women it's who so are stunning. in its leadership. And I don't, and we have no way of knowing this. I'm not convinced that Jewish women were disproportionately represented in the rank and file. They're disproportionately represented in the leadership. 12% of the founding members of the National Organization of Women are Jewish women. Right. So the question is, why are they disproportionately represented in the leadership? And I think, I think first of all, their impetus to feminism for some, it came from the anti-Semitism that we talked about. Okay. For others, it came from the misogyny that they faced in the Jewish world. Bella Abzug, Congresswoman Bella Abzug, when she was 13, her father died. This was during the Depression. She went every single morning and said the memorial prayer for the dead that is not incumbent upon a daughter to say. It's incumbent upon a son to yeah. say. She went to an Orthodox synagogue where she would have sat on the other side of a partition so that she could say this memorial prayer for her father, which is, which just shows she's already a feminist activist as a teenager. But um, so that I think spurs some of the misogyny of that world spurs her activism. But then I think about the women who are activists. They went to college. Think about what college teaches. You know, we're sitting on a college <laughs> campus. I to think that my students learn how to read critically, how to speak in public, how to think sharply, how to voice their thoughts. And also for the women in the 1950s and the 1960s who are going to become the activists in the feminist movement, if they were activists on college campuses and a lot of them went to women's colleges where they would have been, they also learned how to run a mimeograph machine, right? You need those skills. And I think that that skill set was the impetus to their leadership. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. So fascinating. Um, So thinking about the role of um, thinking about American Jewish history as a field and women's history as a field and sort of um, what would you say about what would you tell women's historians about where American Jewish women should fit in thinking about the field? Thinking about the field. That's such a good question. When Paula Hyman wrote her groundbreaking article in the 1970s on the 1902 kosher meat boycott, Mm -hmm. I know that she chose to write about that because women's historians only consider Jewish women 
in terms of their labor activism in the shirtwaist makers strike of 1909. And Hyman was showing a different, a different group of women activists who were immigrant mothers were not what you would have, and, and who were acting around a religious issue, which was the high price of kosher meat. Right. I was about to say, maybe we should tell yeah. for our audience what this, so, this protest was about. Right. So the, the um, in 1902, the price of, so Jew, let me back up. Jewish <laughs> women, Jews need, religious Jews need to eat meat that has been properly slaughtered and prepared and meet certain religious standards. Kosher meat is traditionally more expensive because of this process. And in 1902, the price of kosher meat soared um, because of uh, issues with the meat trust, soared from 12 cents a pound to 18 cents a pound. Immigrant Jewish women who, as, as one of them said to the, the judge after she was arrested, were not rioting, only see how thin our children are. They needed every single penny to feed their families and clothe their families and pay the rent. And so they launched a protest and they and in this protest they were rioting because they broke into butcher shops, um, smashed the windows, took the meat out, threw it in the street, doused it with kerosene, and then sometimes set it aflame. And they ultimately were, succeeded in bringing the price down um, for a period of time. But it was the harbinger of a of dozens of food and rent strikes that broke out over the next decades in major urban areas whenever the ability of immigrant and and their immigrant Jewish women and their daughters would be able to was compromised because of rising prices and it is an example of Jewish women's activism that cuts across the across the generations okay um, but getting back to also to the, just the question of where it fits into so it fits, um, so it fits into women's history because women's historians have paid originally when they were writing women's historians were really interested in activist women right and later women's historians began to explore other issues like sexuality and maternalism and so I see the, the historiography of Jewish women beginning to speak to the field of, of U.S. women's history. I'll be honest, by and large, the field of U.S. women's history didn't pay a lot of attention to women's historians. There's a wonderful reader, a collection of essays by the first generation of women's historians. And I once counted the number of Jewish women who were in there, and it was disproportionate to the number of, of women of other traditions who were in there. But they weren't, they didn't see Jewishness as distinctive. And my argument is, is that Jewishness remains distinctive. So there, there was a debate um, maybe 10 years ago or, or a conversation about the role of American Jewish history in American history more right. broadly. And there's sort of actually been a sense in American Jewish history that it's kind of been the step stepchild of Jewish studies on the one side, which right. we can maybe talk about, and also kind of ignored um, I mean, I I don't feel like that's putting it too strongly. It's not um, by American historians, right. and one of the things um, that was mentioned in this debate that I'm thinking about, but can't entirely um, pinpoint, but was that 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 Jews were considered when when ethnic studies emerged and when various groups began to focus on their own histories um, in the 1980s or 1970s, 1980s in response to sort of 60s radicalism, a multicultural paradigm emerged, right. and Jews were excluded from that, and that so that somehow shapes has shaped how historians have looked or thought about American Jews, and and meaning that American Jews have sort of been seen as white. Right. And so they don't have an ethnic or a distinct history that falls into the multicultural paradigm. So I'm, I don't know where I'm getting with the question, but I'm trying to think about, um, did you, do you see something similar going on in American women's history? Did that, did I, did that, did that conundrum sh shape your thinking at all? Or, or just, I, I'm just curious what you have to say about it or your so thoughts. First of all, I think you've captured the historiography brilliantly. I think that American history and American women's history have by and large, with the few exceptions like the women in the labor movement, have really ignored the writing in American Jewish history. And I think some of it, reflects some what we talked about before, which is that people don't really know how to categorize Jews. Yeah. It definitely reflects what happened with the multicultural turn. 
Um, the only place where you see historians tending to pay a lot of attention to writing in American Jewish history is when you get to whiteness studies. So I think of Matthew Fry Jacobson's yep. work and Eric, Eric Goldstein's Goldstein. work, and I and they their works are included in the conversation about whiteness in mm-hmm. um, in American history. But American, I would say first of all, let's think broadly about the writing of American history. American history. What what are you know what are the subjects? What's taught? If you look sometimes, if you look at these, you know these great. Um, readers and and big textbooks that are used in classes i you can you can look in the back of those textbooks or those readers and jews appear a handful of times they're they're just not the scholarship has not been incorporated into the grand narrative yeah the question is should it be incorporated into the grand narrative we're talking about a community that was never more than 4% of the population of the united states I would like to think that more of it would be incorporated into the grand narrative. But when I look at those narratives, I see kind of a broad writing about white Americans. Then they tell the story of African Americans. And then they might pay some attention to various ethnic groups. So maybe Jews get slotted in their slightly. With the Irish and the Italians. Yeah, with the Irish and the Italians and a little bit about that. And And it's like... It's like there's the Jewish moment, and that's the East European immigrant experience. Um, there doesn't seem to be a way to feed the Jewish story into those broader narratives. And it hasn't been done in American history, and it has not been done in American women's history. I, um, and it, it would be, you know, especially as this is the launch of um, the podcast for the moving of the Journal of Women's History yeah. to the University of Oklahoma, it would it would be great to see more articles on American Jew um, on American Jewish women in the journal, and it would be great to see more articles um, in Journal of American History um, on on this on the subject. But I a lot of the conversation continues to remain among American Jewish historians, and when I go to meetings, if I go to the Organization of American Historians, if I go to the American Historical Association and I go to the few sessions that happen to deal with Jewish history, I meet the same people. Mm. I meet my friends. That's who's there. <laughs> and the, the, it, it doesn't break out into the wider historiography. Um, David Hollinger, about a decade ago, so right. an intellectual historian at Berkeley, I believe, um, talked about how in his career he has written a sort of by, I don't know if by accident, but he's written a lot by Jews because he's talking about larger um, trends in intellectual history. And so he called for something called dispersionist history, which meant looking at the presence of Jews in various areas of American life, irregardless of whether they identified outwardly with anything Jewish, um, as a way to integrate American Jewish history more into American history. So... um, so I think he used the example of second wave feminists that we've already talked about, that so many of the leaders were um, Jewish. And even though they didn't outwardly identify as Jewish or they didn't cite their Jewishness as um, why they were um, involved in feminism until much later, that there was a Jewish story to be told. Right. Um, so I wonder if you find his um, argument convincing or compelling. And the other thing I'll just say about your book is I think it does a brilliant job of at least in my opinion, of to some extent doing some dispersionist history, but also staying tied to talking about Jewish communal life and that they're not two separate things. Right. Um, first of all, thank you. <laughs> I the the there's a wonderful book that I think like was sparked by Hollinger, Joyce Antler, Radical Jewish yes. Feminism. She went and interviewed so many of those women who were in the radical feminist movement and who then who turned out to be Jewish and who never, ever, even though all the women in their consciousness raising groups were Jewish, never really thought about what it meant, the fact that they were Jewish. So there, so I think we're beginning to see that dispersionist history. And that's a book that for sure anybody who's writing about second wave feminism is going to have to have to pay attention to. When, what I tried to do was I saw Jewish women as kind of in three different streams. So I definitely paid attention 
to the dispersionist stream, the Jewish women right. who were not paying, uh, whose identities were, were not, being Jewish was not salient for them, but it was salient for others. And I think salient for this history. And then, but I also, as you noticed, I wrote about Jewish women who centered Judaism at the core of their lives. There's a segment of Jewish women who moved from Sabbath to Sabbath, yeah. from holiday to holiday, and it affected their lives. Like Rose Pines Cone that we were talking about right. a few minutes ago. It affected what she, um, her choices and limited her choices. Then there's a whole other cohort of Jewish women who I'm really interested in, and Jewishness affects their lives. Um, mm-hmm. In certain time periods, it determined who they married. It determined the neighborhoods they lived in. Yeah. It determined the amount of education they had. But they weren't moving from Sabbath to Sabbath. But it was a stream running through their lives. You know, we don't we don't tend to think of inter- the notions of intersectionality applying to Jewish women's lives. But I'm but it it's braided. Being a Jew is braided into their lives and to other identities and to other identities. That makes total sense. Yeah. Um, so in studying the American women's Jewish experience. Um, and if you were talking to future graduate students who might be listening to this podcast, where did you find, um, where are areas that are just like calling for more exploration? First of all, I think there are, and, and your future work is, is going to highlight this. There are important women whose voices and stories we know nothing about. And there were so many that I couldn't, you know, I could not possibly include um, in this book. So there's there's a whole there's a whole category of intellectual Jewish women that we need to know much more about. In this book, I deliberately did not write about Jewish women in popular culture. Right. I hit a point. I had a a big section on it in my thirty five page single spaced outline, <laughs> and I looked at it and I said. I can't do this in one book. And in fact, um, as I had mentioned, um, the New York Times reviewer, the chief criticism was this, that I had one sentence for Barbara Streisand. And of course, Barbara Streisand either gets an entire book or she gets one <laughs> sentence. And I could live with that criticism. But Jewish women have been disproportionately represented in high popular culture, in low culture, and we need to know much more about, about that. that. And when I was able to include Jewish Jewish women who were um, important voices in popular culture, I included them because I could tell a story about them that fit within my broader narrative. So, for example, I did not include Cynthia Ozick to my um, great despair, but I could include Grace Paley because Grace Paley writes about abortions, mm-hmm. and I'm interested in sexuality and um, maternity. Um, so I think that that is a major area. There's so many areas that future graduate students could explore. Could look into. Um, so what were some of the, I mean, we've hinted a little bit at this, but what were some of the biggest challenges in writing this book? The There, there are multiple, multiple <laughs> challenges in writing this book. First challenge <laughs> is that the original manuscript was twice as long. And if I wanted to reach a broader audience, I had to make very difficult cuts. Second challenge was that originally my editor said, I don't want any footnotes and notes. <laughs> and endnotes are in my DNA. Yeah. So I hit the panic button. And then we made a compromise, no discursive notes, but I could have my sourcing, um, which meant that then the book could reach my colleagues in women's history and my colleagues in American history, and but could also potentially reach a broader audience. And I had to make very, very difficult writing decisions about what stories I would tell. So in the longer version of the manuscript, like a good historian, I would have three examples for every point. Right. And then as I cut, I made, I, I, I just kind of could hear in my head What's the best story? And that's mm-hmm. what I left on the table. And the other big challenge was, and this is something that I didn't know before, but um, because I published with Norton, with a mainstream press, I was told that w- general readers, unlike historians, don't want to hear the voices of your characters. They want the authorial voice. So I was actually told to paraphrase so many of these fabulous quotations yeah. that I had in the original manuscript. 
and only to use quotations very, very sparingly. And that's that's a lesson, uh, you know, I've been writing my whole life. That's a lesson I didn't know. And I think it helped. I, my editor was right. It makes for a, a book that reads in a different way. Was it challenging to do? I mean, you've written eight books. Yeah. I'm for, for working on my first. And I think this idea of having an authoritative voice, I, I did it. Do you feel like it came with eight books that so that when, when they told you to do that, um, you could sort of take on that authoritarian, that authoritative voice? Or was it still something that felt kind of weird? Um, and that's coming interesting. more. Yeah, uh, I it it, it w- it's interesting. At first, it felt weird <laughs> to cut the the original quotations. And then I realized as I paraphrased them and still had an end note to source them, as I paraphrased them, I realized it sounded better. And one mm-hmm. of the things, I, I don't know, maybe you do this too. I always tell my students to do this. I read everything I write out loud. Of course. And I write and then I put it away at the end of the day. And then in the morning I wake up and I read it out loud and then I completely rewrite it. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. And I And so I could hear what sounded better. Okay. Interesting. Um, so in the introduction of the book, you started actually with a personal story. Right. Um, and maybe you want to share that personal story. And I'm curious if you could talk about, I mean, this book seems in some ways deeply personal. I mean, we're both American Jewish women. So in that sense, there's a, there's a, it's, it's our, our history, our past. But if you could talk a little bit about why, um, well, why you used a personal story to start the book and also about combining the personal with the historical. Right. Thanks. I, the first thing I would say is when I published one of my earlier books is called Women Who Would Be Rabbis, A History of Women's mm-hmm. Ordination. And I also opened that with a personal story. It was a story about um, a friend of mine in high school who announced that she wanted to be the first woman rabbi. And I had something that had stuck in my head and I'd always remember it. And it was interesting when I was writing that book, I wrote that introduction And then a friend read the book, a scholar, and she told me, you can't start the book that way. You need to start with, with, um, you know, the historiography. So then I wrote another introduction and then I sent it to my editor. My editor said, no, no, you need, you need to have the personal story to open it because it's like a hook for the reader. It brings people in. And I, I'm not sure when I hit upon using these family photos as the introduction to the book, but I know that my editor at Norton really, really liked the opening. And I have these extraordinary photos, which, uh, which I'm going to show to the, um, to the audience tonight. So stunningly in the beginning of the first decade of the 20th century, my great grandmother had a series of portraits made that were printed on cloth that my grandmother had never seen. And when my grandmother at the end, towards the end of her life, moved into the nursing home, she took them, they were folded, took them out of her sewing kit. She had always planned to make them into pillows. Apparently, because they were printed on cloth, they're apparently quite rare. And so they're now in my dining room behind museum quality glass. And the one of my great grandmother is, she is, she is wearing, it is so clear, she is wearing a scheidel. The wig a married Jewish woman who was observant would have worn then, and which many married observant Jewish women right. will wear today. You can just see it at her hairline. <laughs> and I thought she looked really old-fashioned, so I would always, I, I, and that's what I wrote in the book. So then I started showing the photos. I'm at the University of Minnesota, and one of my former undergraduates is there getting a PhD in apparel design. And she says to me, the dress my great-grandmother was wearing went out of style in 1870. So I know she was old-fashioned. When was the picture from? First decade of the 20th century. Okay. And it's paired with a, a photo of her daughter, my grandmother, at about age um, 14. And my former student said the dress she's wearing was a lingerie or linen dress, and it was in style between 1903 and 1910. So I knew that she was very au courant. And so I start, it, it was those photos that let me go back into the story, because as I looked at the photos of the women in my family and how their clothing had changed, then I could ask the questions, how had their lives changed? So it's a hook 
into the story. You're right. It's a very personal book. We historians, we write what is our passion. We are not dispassionate. But I don't talk about my family anywhere else in the book. Just in the beginning. Just in the introduction. Um, and the book won the Jewish Book of the Year from the National Jewish um, uh, from the National Jewish Book Awards. Right. So congratulations Thank on you. that. And we were talking a little earlier before um, we came to record about the book appearing at a particular moment right. that resonates. And I wonder if you have um, any... Uh, if you, any thoughts on that, or I, I do. I, I think we write our books, we send them out into the world. We hope they will get some kind of reception. But when we send them out into the world, we never know what the world will be looking at at that moment in time. So, had I written this book and published it before the Me Too, Me Too yeah. movement, before the Women's March? Before women are oh, yeah. so prominent in um, in the news media today, I, it's not that it would have sunk, but I don't think it would have gotten the kind of reception that it's gotten. And I think it was the right moment for a book on Jewish women to be chosen for such a big prize. Yeah. And it seems then that the amount of years that this book sort of percolated, right. um, there was a reason, yeah. I guess, not just to <laughs> that it takes that long to write a book, but there was a moment where right. this book needed to appear. Right. I mean, I like to believe those types of things yeah. <laughs> yeah. myself with my own work that <laughs> take a long time. Um, well, that's such a big accomplishment. So congratulations Thank again. Um, is there anything else? Um, I'm trying to think. Um, oh, yeah. So um, I do have one more thing that I'll just ask, which is where do you think American Jewish or what do you think the future story is of American Jewish women. That could be- it, I, the fu- I think the future story of American Jewish women is going to be very, very hard to write because we moved away from letter writing yeah. and we moved to email and Twitter Text. and TikTok and <laughs> every, everything. And the sourcing is going to be really hard. This book is built on centuries of letter writers yeah. and published records. And I don't envy the next generation of historians that want to wade through all of those inconsequential emails to find the ones that are valuable. Oh, that makes sense. I was when I was um, interviewing someone for my own project. One of the things that he mentioned that somewhere like at nineteen, somewhere in the nineteen nineties, these letters just they stop with email. And you in the archives when you go now, you have these long letters where really people express what they're thinking and they're feeling, and that's how people communicated, and it just stopped. Right. And he was like, it happened almost overnight. Right. right. Yeah. I mean, I can remember. I remember when I got my first email account. Right. right. Um, I do too. I mean, I was in college, but um, right. I, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, we've taken a lot of your time. Um, and thank you so much for talking about your book. Thank you so much for coming to the University of Oklahoma. Um, we're so excited that this is going to be the inaugural podcast for the Journal of Women's History. And I think in just thinking about the things that we talked about and trying to um, bring a, Amer- the American Jewish experience into that field. It's so appropriate that this was the book that we started with. So I'm so pleased. Um, and I guess the final question is, do you have any sense before we say goodbye, um, where are you going to go next? Right now I'm teaching a freshman seminar, a brand new freshman seminar on anti-Semitism. Uh, we talked about it during the, the interview. A lot of historians right now are thinking about anti-Semitism. So I don't know what I'll write about next, but I'm in the middle of developing a brand new course. Awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear more. Thanks again. Thank you.